On Reformation Sunday, I always begin with this slide. Knowing our past equips our present and shapes our future. It is so important for us to know what has taken place before us. If we don't know, we know the, the, the saying. We are doomed to repeat those mistakes. But in church history, we are also blessed by knowing what has taken place before because we can benefit from their successes, from their faithfulness, from the stand that they've taken in the work of the kingdom. Knowing our past equips our present and shapes our future. When I came in 2008, uh, I learned not long after being here at the church that our collective church history knowledge was deficient and lacking. And in part, that contributed to some real challenges that we had in the first couple years at this church. Uh, there was division over things that would have been clear if we knew our history, our church, not this church history, but the history of the church, where we've come from, and the heritage of faith, the doctrines forged in the fire of persecution. And so I set out in 2010 to uh, one Sunday a year preach a, a church history sermon, a, a biography sermon on men who have tremendously blessed the kingdom of God, the, the shapers of our faith, reformers, pioneer missionaries, hymn writers, and everything in between, theologians, shapers of our faith. The most significant, uh, this is the one I began with in 2010, is Martin Luther. It was 504 years ago, on October 31st, this day, that he pounded his 95 theses on the, on, the, on the door of the castle at Wittenberg. It was like a bulletin board of sorts. And he went and he began what is known as the Protestant, the protesting revolution against the Roman Catholic Church for all the corruption that was taking place. It was rampant, horrific corruption. The gospel was compromised. People were selling salvation for money. <laughs> They built St. Peter's off the backs of lies. And the list goes on and on. Martin Luther echoes around the world in the faithful handling of God's Word today. God raised up one man in that moment to, to start the reforming of His church. It's one of the reasons we're not Roman Catholic today. We are known as Protestants, and I've been uh, kind of thinking about this. There's been a lot of protesting the last few years. No one can hold a candle to the protesting that we have carried for 504 years. We are the original protesters, as it were. And what I love about this, what I texted to all my pastor buddies this morning, is Semper Reformanda. We must continue the Reformation. Long live the Reformation. It continues. Our job is to reform and reform back to the Word of God. To find our practice and our churches fixed on the Word of God faithfully through the generations. It is never finished. There's always more work to be done. And so, the five solas of the Reformation, if you don't yet know them, I pray that you will know them. These are essential doctrines that we understand from the Word of God and proclaim here at this church. Sola Scriptura. It is on the authority of Scripture alone, not popes and papacies, not all oh, the craziness that comes out of uh, Rome of late, but, but the Word of God. Unchanging, true, preserved, clear, sufficient, and beautiful. His revelation is the authority that we look to. We are saved sola gratia, by grace alone. It is unmerited. There is nothing in us that is the condition upon which we are saved. It is the work of God, the gift of God, the grace of God that is the very basis for our salvation. We are saved by grace alone through sola fide, faith alone. Now, if you're not careful, you can see these as somehow competing. Sola gratia is in complete unison with sola fide, faith alone. Why is that? Well, because faith is not a work that we perform. Faith is a gift of God's grace that is given. The very faith that saves us, that we employ to trust Jesus, is the grace of God. 
given to us, not worked up from within us as some kind of condition that denies his grace. No, the very faith that saved you, my friend, was the grace of God at work in you. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that is in Jesus Christ alone. Solus Christus. There's no other Savior. In no other place around the world at any time has there ever been another Savior. It is Christ alone who saves sinners. And He does so to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. You might see in Facebook posts and different things when I put S. D-G. That's what I mean. Soli Deo Gloria. All of life is to be lived to the glory of God. All of what God does is ultimately done for His glory. These are so critically important. These ring out of the text, off the pages of Scripture, cover to cover. I set about in 2010 to preach through this list. My final Reformation sermon at this, at this point, I'll preach in 2046. If the Lord tarries and I'm still alive, and I'm going to preach that on my father, uh, his life and his legacy, his preaching ministry that has shaped me and us together then through him. What's weird is when I look at this, I see the years of my ministry passing by. Uh, we got a lot of work to do still. I've, I'm not that far through the Bible. We've got some major verses to cover if I'm going to finish this before I die. But, friends, my longing is that this will be the pulpit where I finish my ministry. And year by year, as long as the Lord tarries and you're here with us, we're going to learn more church history. And so you can see where we've covered thus far. This is the 12th Reformation Day sermon. And, uh, man, I'm so excited. There's so many incredible stories to be told that are on the list. Some of these men are still alive. Most of them are, are gone by now. And by the time we reach that, I may be too. Who knows? But His kingdom continues forward. Long after we're past, may the generations that follow us find us faithful as we look to these men in their faithfulness to the Lord. Today, Charles Spurgeon. Isn't that a great picture? I love that picture of old, old Spurgeon. 1834 to 1892, he's known and I think accurately so, rightly so, he didn't call himself this, but history refers to Spurgeon as the prince of preachers. I would say this, he is unsurpassed in the preaching ministry when you consider all of the great preachers who have, have come after Christ. I think he stands alone. It is an amazing thing to see. We're going to look at his life up close today. I titled my sermon, Charles Spurgeon, evangelism without compromise. Evangelism without compromise. And the text that I picked is Isaiah 45, 22. You're going to understand why I chose this text more, but let's read that together. This is the verse, turn or look to me, God says, and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He's calling people out of their idolatries, out of their paganism. And he's saying, listen, if you want salvation, there's nowhere else to look. Turn or look, look, look to me and be saved. Now we know the New Testament fulfillment of this is in Jesus Christ. So you can see these words in Isaiah as being fulfilled in the call of Christ himself. Look to me. If anyone thirsts, come and drink water. Look to me and be saved. And I love this. All the ends of the earth, every nation and tribe and language, come, come, come and be saved. That is the gospel that we carry. The gospel that has affected us so powerfully. The gospel that we take to work on Monday morning. I want to begin by just kind of sharing uh, a bit of uh, Spurgeon's life and story, and then we'll, we'll let some of these experiences that he had build out and challenge our faith today. Just to say this, this is a biography sermon. I do one of these a year. My comfort zone is exposition. Verse, next verse, next verse. This is not that, okay? There is a place for biography, but I certainly don't do this every week. It's just you know, caveat so you know. 
We're going to be fairly light in Scripture, fairly heavy in church history, but it's purposeful on this one day. So come with me. Conversion and early ministry. Charles Spurgeon was born on June 19, 1834 in Essex, England, to French Huguenot and Dutch Reformed parents who had sought refuge in England from religious persecution. I share in my own family heritage some of that French Huguenot um, bloodline and the, the, oh, the persecution was intense. And praise God for the safe harbor that they found in England during this time. In fact, a lot of our ancestors followed that path. They came from France or um, Scotland or various places around in, in Holland to England and then from England made the trip across the, the pond over to the United States. Charles was born as the oldest, the firstborn of 17 children. Wow. Think of this now. Of the 17 children that the Spurgeons had, only eight survived infancy. Okay, now this was very common in the day. In fact, a lot of times they wouldn't even name their child until they had survived infancy because of the normal death rate at this time. Remember, these are harsh times. As I was saying last week, our planet is a hostile planet. The fall affects all of us, and the death that they experienced in this day was, was heavy and weighty. Spurgeon experienced a rich heritage. His grandfather and his, his father were both pastors. And when he was 18 months old, he was sent, we don't know why exactly, but he was sent at 18 months to go and live with his grandparents out in the country at their farm. This turned out to be a special blessing for Spurgeon. Um, he, as he grew, he just delighted in the hymns. In fact, his grandmother gave him a penny for every uh, hymn from Isaac Watts that he memorized and sang to her. And she ran out of money, so she, she lowered the price down. Okay, give you a half a penny for every hymn because he was just nailing them and singing them away. And his grandfather was a faithful preacher of God's word. In the attic, there was a treasure trove, though. And this is what Spurgeon discovered. And he spent hours in the attic, no windows, by candlelight, reading through the Puritans. He discovered John Bunyan, who I preached back in 2017, a biography sermon on, and the Pilgrim's Progress. And then he read all of these Puritan writers and um, had, had just found inspiration. He's a young guy reading the Reformers at a young age, being shaped powerfully. And uh, what people didn't realize at this point is what a genius he was. He ate up books. In fact, when he died, he had 12,000 books in his own personal library. He would read six books a week in addition to all the other things we're going to see he did. On January 6, 1850, at age 15, God graciously saved Spurgeon. Listen to this account. Listen to the sovereign work of God in saving Charles Spurgeon. He was walking to church, but due to a terrible snowstorm, he had to take shelter in this Methodist church. This was not his home church. He had never been in this church. In fact, as a, a Baptist, this was quite foreign to him, unexpected, but he couldn't go any farther because of the snow, so he turned in to this Baptist church. The snowstorm was so bad that the pastor that day could not make it to the Methodist church, and only about 12 people were there in this tiny little congregation. A man, finally, when they realized the pastor wasn't coming, which that would be awkward, you're sitting in this room, you're freezing, and, and okay, no pastor. So which one of you is going to stand up and preach? Finally, a man stood up, feebly walked up to the front, opened his Bible to Isaiah 45, 22. This man was not a preacher. He was just a guy from the congregation. And he stood up and began to preach. Now listen to the state of mind that Spurgeon was in when he walked in this church in the middle of the snowstorm. He says, I was in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity and sin. But, but still, by divine grace, I was led to feel the bitterness of that bondage. He was still a slave of sin. But God, he says, in grace made him miserable in his sin. And to cry out by reason of the soreness of its slavery, seeking rest and finding none. 
I stepped within the house of God and sat there, afraid to look upward lest I should be utterly cut off and lest His, that is, God's fierce wrath should consume me. He was overwhelmed with the reality of his own sinfulness. Even as a pastor's kid at age 15, he had yet to give his heart and life to Christ. Though he wanted to, he could not. He was bound in his sin. Powerless in in himself to to overcome this. Listen to how it goes down. This feeble man began to preach on this verse and Spurgeon said he spun out on it for about 10 minutes. He didn't have any sermon prepared and so he just read this verse and then he began to emphasize different words of the verse. Turn or or look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And then he would emphasize the words and, and just, you know, herald the words. The preaching of God's Word goes forward in power. At one point, the man preaching looked at Spurgeon and said, young man, you look miserable. (laughs) Spurgeon's in the back with his head down. He's terrified of God's wrath in the weight of his sin, like Pilgrim with the weight of all of his, his own failures and sins on his back. He said, look, to Jesus Christ. And then here's a sermon. Here comes a sermon. Look! 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 You have nothing to do but look! Spurgeon had heard the plan of salvation from birth. He had heard the Gospel over and over countless times. But God chose that moment to open His eyes to Jesus Christ and bring Him to salvation. The most unlikely place and time through the most unlikely, feeble, regular man of the church to preach one verse and just read it over and over and emphasize a word or two. Spurgeon says, there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. He's referring to Jesus. He saw Christ in all His glory. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them at the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Christ alone, cornerstone. There is only one place to look. And look! Just look! He did the work. Ours is simply to look in faith. Look to Him and trust. Believe upon His name and you will be saved. And that day, young Charles Spurgeon was born again. Became a new man that day. Says he went home to his family and he was light and happy. And they were like, what's going on with you? What happened? He's like, I got saved in the Methodist church. Irony of ironies. It might have been the grace of God that kept that pastor home with the snow. Hmm. Now, a dynamic proclamation for the common man. In this day, preaching had become very heady and intelligent and very manuscripted and almost predictable. It was very, it was like you would, you would hear men stand up and read very somber and serious, weighty words of, of their preaching. And that's not bad, but in large part, the common people didn't engage that way. Or you would hear this this prose, this this oratory um, kind of speech that was given in in all of the fancy English that was of the time. And, And London, right? This is kind of the big deal. Charles Spurgeon was just a regular dude. He was from the country. He didn't have all this flowery stuff. But God used that to kind of wake people from their slumber and connect with them. Just everyday illustrations of life. One of the things God used in just an ordinary man called to do extraordinary things. At age 16, okay, he was saved at 15. This is less than a year later. Spurgeon preached his first sermon. (laughs) And his gift was immediately recognized. There was a small little church 
and a mentor of his sent he and a buddy over to this little church and he told Spurgeon, your buddy's going to preach his first sermon. I'd like you to go along to be moral support. And he told his buddy, Spurgeon is going to preach his first sermon. I want you to go along for moral support. So they're walking to this church and Spurgeon's like, I'm so glad you're, I'm proud of you, man. You're preaching your first sermon. And he's like, I'm not preaching. You're preaching. Then they realized they had been set up. One of them had to preach. There was no getting out of it. And so Spurgeon said, I'll, 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 give it a, I'll give it a try. And he preached. And immediately the people were struck by this young man and the word of God that he proclaimed. At age 17, one year later, Spurgeon was made the pastor of a Baptist church in a small kind of rural area and the church grew rapidly. They saw the gift in this man and they said, we want him as our pastor. And they called him. Well, his uh, fame spread quickly throughout the countryside and into London, and uh, he began to be known there. He was invited with a letter that he thought was a joke. He actually didn't really believe it at first. They sent another letter inviting him to candidate to be the pastor at the most famous Baptist church in all of London, the New Park Street Chapel, which is a weird name for a church. New Park, which one is it? Is it a park or street? I don't, anyway. After preaching for three months there, they said, you're in. At age 19, you are going to be our pastor. This church was cavernous. It was huge. But the congregation had dwindled down to about 200 people. They could fit, I think, well over like 1,200 people in their building. But only 200 people were left. And he began to preach. And that church instantly grew and filled. There was something unique that God was doing through this country kid who was preaching the word of God. Spurgeon asked, uh, they asked Spurgeon to be their pastor and he shepherded the same congregation faithfully until he died 38 years later. That's my dream. That's my goal. I think that should be a goal of all preaching pastors. No more of the merry-go-round and, and career building and climbing the corporate ladder. Find a congregation, preach the word, and then go be with Jesus. Faithful longevity in ministry blesses God's people. By His grace, may it be. It was hard to find space for all the people who desired to sit under His preaching after moving to various locations. And I'm really summing up a lot of challenges. The church decided to build the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the largest house of worship in the world at the time with seating for 6,000 people, roughly. This is a, an artist's rendition of what it looked like when it was completed. It was right in the middle of London, and it was packed. It was packed. Every time they opened and Spurgeon took the pulpit, the church filled up. Now, this is multiple times a day on Sunday and throughout the week. It filled up. He preached 600 sermons before turning the age of 20. Okay, now just do some math here with me. If a pastor preaches 52 weeks a year, it takes him 11 and a half years to preach 600 sermons. Before he turned 20, he had already preached 600 sermons. That tells you how active and busy and ferocious his preaching ministry was. He was on it, on the gas pedal. In fact, if there's a weakness of Spurgeon, it's hard to find, if there is a weakness, it's that he was too heavy on the gas pedal and he just, he just wore himself out. Died at the age of 57. So there's balance in ministry. We want deal without burnout. Deal without burnout. And uh, Spurgeon went all in for the years God gave him. And 600 sermons. Now think about this. This is when there is no electricity. There is no microphone or fans or air conditioning. Okay, imagine how in the world he would preach multiple times in one day to 6,000 people with no microphone. No microphone. Just his own voice. It was all those people in that, in that space. <laughs> Just imagine how hot it would be in the summer and humid. Hmm. Probably no deodorant then either. 
We are so spoiled. I mean, for real. Padded seats, fans, air conditioning, lights, microphones. My voice is exhausted after doing two services and singing all the songs, which I can't help myself. I can hardly talk. It hurts. He did that with no amplification. All week. By God's grace. In fact, there was a, a national day of mourning that was declared when India had a big revolt against uh, the troops that England had in their country, and many, many died, and it was horrific. And so a national day of mourning was declared, and they, they found the largest facility they could find in all of London, and Spurgeon was invited to preach to the nation. 23,600 people gathered in this place, and he preached a full-length sermon, and everyone heard him. <laughs> that's, that's nothing short of miraculous right there. He was so tired after finishing that kind of workout, that proclamation of God's Word, that he slept for 24 hours straight after finishing that labor. This is Spurgeon. On January 8, 1856, Charles married Susanna. Oh, man, study her life. What an amazing woman this lady was. Susanna um, Spurgeon, who was a member of his congregation, she was struggling with assurance of her faith. And Charles said, well, I'd, I'd be happy to mentor you. And uh, it budded into a little relationship, and they fell in love. She gave birth to their twin sons, their only children, and during that uh, delivery, she had major health complications that basically made her housebound for the rest of her life. She wasn't able to go and hear her husband preach. She couldn't travel with him at all, but she did not get bitter. She leaned into it and found ways to support and encourage him and to fan the flame of what God was doing. She was responsible for overseeing the ministry that took Spurgeon's sermons and sent them to pastors and missionaries the world over. I'm talking back in this day, all around the world, she was active in, in working to oversee that work. It's one of the main reasons that Spurgeon became so well-known around the world is because of his wife from their house and her coordinating work. There would be someone who would sit in the front row and shorthand the sermons, and then they would work quickly on Mondays to build out the manuscript. He would proof it once, and it would go to the penny press to be sold for a penny all around the world, especially in England. And people would pay for these sermons, and that turned out to be a blessing for the ministry to build orphanages and um, all kinds of things ministry-wise to bless London and missionary work around the world. God was doing something special. A little bit about this man and his preaching, the content. Spurgeon was a theologian extraordinaire in his preaching and he was an evangelist. This is rare, friends. You will often see men who have a heart and a passion for evangelism, but their theology tends to be a little weak and lacking. Or you'll see men who have robust theology, but their evangelism is a little weak and lacking. Spurgeon shot right down the middle. Robust theology and impassioned evangelism. One of the reasons I love him so much. On March 18, 1861, the very first day that the Metropolitan Tabernacle opened, it was packed. People were standing outside listening. Spurgeon decides he would preach on the doctrines of grace. <laughs> he goes through all of the doctrines of grace. That is, my friends, the most challenging doctrines in all of Scripture. They're difficult. They breed questions upon questions. They're hard to conceive of. In fact, some of you might be struggling through some of those as we move through Romans, right? The sovereignty of God in saving people and, and election and predestination and, and how does that work and, and, and all of these things. He goes right at them the first Sunday as church opens to bless His people with the glory of God's Word. He didn't shy away from passages. He wasn't skipping verses. Hmm. In fact, he believed that far from being a hindrance to evangelism, as some see them to be, he said they are a great harvester of souls. 
these truths infused soul-saving power into his preaching and brought many to faith in Christ. He said, My dear brethren, do not try to make the gospel tasteful to carnal minds. Hide not the offense of the cross, lest you make it of no effect. The angles and corners of the gospel are its strength. To pare them off is to deprive it of power. Toning down is not the increase of strength, but the death of it. Friends, some of you have come from gospel light churches. Some of you have shared that you've come from churches that have thought to kind of sand off the offense of the gospel. Not talk about hell or even sin. We remove the power of the gospel when we do so. The wrath of God is to be in view. The sovereignty of God is to be in view. Every verse of the Bible that fills out the gospel is the power of the gospel. God's sovereignty is taught in the Scripture and so is human responsibility. There was a point along the way when Spurgeon was asked by someone, how do you reconcile these two things? They seem to contradict. And Spurgeon said, I don't have to reconcile friends. These doctrines are both taught in the Scriptures. They are both gems and we should wear them both. What a great response. They're both true. Now let me be clear because sometimes people misrepresent Spurgeon on this. When he says that God is sovereign in salvation, he's talking about election and predestination and those things that sometimes just oh, grind people. And when he says that man is responsible, he is not saying that man is free to save himself. That is not what he's saying. That's not what human responsibility means biblically. It means that we answer for the decisions that we willfully, volitionally make. Listen to how he builds this out. From the Word of God, I gather that damnation is all of man. From top to bottom. And salvation is all of grace. This is so well put. From first to last. He that perishes chooses to perish. But he that is saved is saved because God has chosen to save him. He would go on to say, we declare on scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief, so depraved, so inclined to everything that is evil, so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will, no human will ever be constrained toward Christ. Do you hear that, what he's saying? He's not saying you have free will. He's saying the will that you have is not free. It is constrained to sin. You make decisions. We all do. We're, we're not robots. We do what we want. The problem is what we want is sin, not Christ. Even in the hearing of the Gospel, we stiff-arm Christ. And we've seen this even in Romans, right? It's all throughout Romans. So the one who is saved is saved to the glory of God alone. They have no boast to say, I did that. I was smart enough, good enough, figured it out. It is the work of God. He says a man is not saved against his will, but he is made willing. Oh, write that down. That is so good. You were not saved against your will, but you were made willing by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. It's the operation of the Holy Spirit. A mighty grace which he does not wish to resist now enters the man and disarms him and makes a new creature of him and he is saved. Runs to Christ and is saved. We often don't know how to understand our experience of salvation when we experience it. But the Gospel informs us. These verses of Scripture are clear that your being saved was ultimately God initiating that work and bringing you to Him. Did you make a choice? You did. You absolutely did. Because God first made a choice to bring you to life. This is the Gospel that we preach. This is the Gospel that your Bible proclaims. And it is glorious in our eyes. The error of hyper-Calvinism was something that often Spurgeon would go after 
Here's what happens sometimes. People, even in our day, they'll say, well, if God is sovereign and He's chosen those He's going to save, what's the point of prayer? What's the point of evangelism? And then they'll, they'll, they'll go into this hyper-Calvinism. Friends, even in our county, there are some who have fallen prey to this. That is lunacy. It is completely unbiblical. Why do we evangelize? Why do we pray? Because that is how God has chosen to save. It is the agent of salvation. He sent us to be the mouth, the words, the love, the hands, the feet, the the prayer warriors of His saving work. And Spurgeon went right at him. He had no time for this hyper-Calvinist stuff. He tore that down. That's unbiblical. His life was a great expose of what it looks like to love the doctrines of grace and have a passion and a proclamation to lost people. So, as I seek to do in his sermons, he would constantly be calling, inviting, appealing to sinners, urging them, warning them, pleading with them to come. Look, 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 and be saved. And at the end of the day, he would pray and he would trust. Because he knew he couldn't save anyone. Just like I feel every time I take this photo, I can't save you. I can't save anybody. But I can completely call you and urge you and appeal to you. Come to Christ. Run to Him. Embrace Him as Savior and Lord. Repent of your sins. Look to Him. And you will be saved. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. It is a promise of God. Turn, look to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This was one of the strengths of Spurgeon. His evangelistic zeal together with his doctrinal rich preaching. He preached an entire sermon titled Now. It's an awesome sermon. Look it up and read it through. He preached it from this verse in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now. Today. Not tomorrow, he said. Not tomorrow. Today. And then he would go on to say, procrastination has sent many people to the fires of hell. Don't put off till tomorrow what you know you must do today. Look to Him and be saved. This is Gospel preaching. Faithful gospel, full gospel preaching. I love this quote. May this quote be true of every single one of us here. This is it. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. Forget our guns. Take them if you will. But may no sinner go to hell without having to first leap over our dead bodies. If they perish, Let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Do you feel that? The urgency, the call. People are dying and going into judgment forever. God sent us to be the voice of salvation. May that be true. May the generations say, oh, the zeal of those good shepherd people. What a heritage we have of doctrine rich teaching and preaching and and delight in the gospel and impassioned evangelism to the lost. To reach all who run with all their might to the fires of hell and turn their gaze to Christ. May it be true of us. May we be criticized as Spurgeon was for being too into evangelism. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? The hyper-Calvinist said, dude, you got to tone it down. You're you're really amped up on this evangelism piece. And he said, I I don't even understand what you're talking about. How in the world is that? Are you going to say that to Paul? Now, when you preach this way, 
You invite controversy. Spurgeon wore the robe of controversy and he confronted compromise his entire ministry. Someone said of him, he was not a fighter. He was not a guy who would instigate fights and, and arguments. He didn't love to fight and argue, but it was magnetized to him partly because he was so high profile. He was the preacher of faithful Bible preaching and teaching in London, and everyone sought to just take him on. Look at this list. He was attacked by Arminians over here, the free willers, and the hyper-Calvinists, the hey, the frozen chosen, we don't have to do a thing. Both groups hated Spurgeon, right? They hated what he taught and, and preached. He taught the Bible. And they hated it. Attacked by baptismal regeneration teachers saying in, in, in those Baptists, right? They're always talking about baptism. Well, we don't think that an, unless you're baptized that you're actually saved. You can't go to heaven without being baptized. Well, that's not in the Bible. And Spurgeon took it to him. There are people in our county that teach that. The Bible does not teach that's, that you merit heaven through the work of baptism. That is a failure to reform from the Catholic Church. He was attacked by pro-slavery advocates. In this day, Spurgeon went at the slave trade. He went at those who were trying to guard it and defend it. He hated slavery and he wanted to see it ended. And it brought all kinds of attacks from the establishment of that day. Karl Marx was writing and very much gaining popularity during the, the ministry of Spurgeon, as was Charles Darwin in his Origin of Species, published right in the middle of Spurgeon's ministry. And guess who targeted him? Guess who went right at him and called him out for their, their godlessness and the danger of their teaching? Spurgeon did. Oh, the press, they, they butchered him for it. These comics, they used to do these drawings, kind of caricatures, horrible, mean. I guess they still do that, but back in the day, they, they, you know, they, they drew Spurgeon like a monkey and, and they were making fun of him. All these things. In fact, the press was brutal for Spurgeon because he was not establishment. He came in with no uh, seminary degree. He didn't have that, that resume that the established elites in London approved of and so they just butchered him in the press week after week he was attacked by the enlightened culture for his puritan theology this is the height of enlightenment movement oh it's all what we can do if we put our minds to it we're all this you know all this victory and triumph and and we can you know the medical thing was breaking out and all this problems were were curing with the power of man spurgeon wasn't impressed he simply wasn't impressed. He rejoiced for medical advancements, but he did not see the glory of man as all that glorious. He saw the glory of God. And the Puritan theology that he espoused was written off as old school and over the top and, and kind of archaic and outdated. He saw it as biblical. And he stuck with it. He was out of step, friends, with the culture. And it's one of the reasons his preaching was so powerful. The greatest controversy of his life was when he was attacked by his fellow Baptists for not progressing with the times in order to reach the masses. This was referred to as the downgrade controversy. It was the progressives. Now, that word bugs me. It really does. And not just in a political way. It's arrogant. Every generation must battle against this with this idea that those who have gone before were ignorant and dumb and not as smart or enlightened as we are. Every generation is inclined to arrogance to say that those before us were fools. We get it. Now we see clearly. Oh, the generations would look at our current day with scorn, and rightfully so. You think we know our Bibles better than they did? <laughs> Are you kidding me? We are the most distracted people ever. Lest we think we progress when we compromise the Word of God. It is digression. They said, 
because they didn't esteem the Scriptures like Spurgeon. They wanted to, to look and then to, to worldly entertainment. This is old-school, seeker-sensitive church, right? They wanted to use theatrical techniques and circus-like atmospheres, and they did this, by the way, all in the name of evangelism. It's all about reaching the lost. Does that sound familiar to you? Hey, listen, we don't want to offend anybody. We want every seat full. We're going to build a huge building and we're going to try to make our theology as, as least offensive as possible and we're going to avoid the passages that are tough and offensive and watch how many people we can fill this room with. And I would say, watch the gospel go out the back door. One of the greatest failures in the church is when she succeeds in that way. It's nothing new, friends. There's nothing new under the sun. The same enemy that was alive and at work in Spurgeon's day is having success in our day. Spurgeon resigned from the Baptist Union, so people were stunned that he would do this. This is the banner church, the, the backbone of the union, and he says, I will not be party to this kind of corruption and compromise. I'm out. Out of spite, this is what they wanted to do. Water down the gospel in order to avoid offense and win more souls. Which is, by the way, the sermon title. Evangelism without compromise. Let's be clear. We don't have to apologize for a single word that we find in our Bible. Not a word. Don't ever feel inclined to be embarrassed or to ever apologize for the Word of God. That's not what Paul said. He said, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. All who believe. There have been and there continue to be massive compromises that have been done in the name of of evangelism justifications for altering the gospel justifications for all kinds of zany foolish things that are dubbed as worship by the grace of God we must be faithful on this point Spurgeon said it this way there is inevitably a tendency to regard God's truth as only a means to gain men. And whatever truth does not appear to us to be effective towards that end, whatever truth seems to be an obstacle uh, to the widest possible evangelism, it is consequently liable to be laid aside. But what is here forgotten is that the ultimate end of the Gospel is not the conversion of men, but the glory of God. Oh man. Who am I to say the food on the plate needs to be spruced up a bit before I serve your table on Sunday morning. That is not my job. It's the height of arrogance to say of the words of God. Sorry about this. <laughs> Let's skip over that page. Too hard. Now friends, this is not just in theory. We're going into Romans 9-11 through 11 soon. Okay? Buckle up. These are tough doctrines. Very difficult. And in many churches, even in this county, they are completely ignored. We don't have that choice. Why would we ever say that of the Word of God? It is good. It is to be embraced. It is to be rejoiced in. Because it is the revelation of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for us. At their annual meeting, the Baptists made a motion to denounce Spurgeon, and it passed. Look at the number. <laughs> this, this is mind-blowing. 2007. This is after years of faithful, gospel, Christ-centered, Bible-saturated preaching. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me first. Don't be surprised if staying true to God's Word invites into your life even from brothers and sisters criticism and heartache. Listen to Spurgeon. 
Oh, for the power to live, to die, to labor, to suffer as unto Him and unto Him alone. If a deed done for Christ should bring you into disesteem and threaten to deprive you of usefulness, do it nonetheless, Christian. I count my own character, popularity, and usefulness to be as the small dust of the balance compared with faithfulness. Oh, friends, that's the word. That's the word to aim for. Faithful. Lord, make me faithful. Compared to faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Oh, sirs, what have we to do with consequences? Let the heavens fall. But let the good man be obedient to his master and loyal to his truth. O man of God, be just and fear not. The consequences are with God and not with thee. Christ has accepted it. He will note it down. And in thy conscience, he will smile thee his approval even when 2,000 of your fellow pastors frown. Who are you going to live for? The praise of men or the praise of God? The approval of God. The well done, good and what? Faithful. Faithful servant. And an ordinary man with an extraordinary impact. Let me just sum up the end of his life and the legacy that God accomplished through this man. 40 years of preaching ministry, 14,692. That's some good bookkeeping right there, right? New church members added 11,000 baptisms. Spurgeon preached in person, no microphone, to over 10 million people in those 40 years. His twin son succeeded him as pastor. Um, Thomas as pastor. Charles as the head of the orphanage that he founded in London. Kids were destitute and poor, and he said, someone needs to do something about it. We have the resources. Let's do it. And he started an orphanage. He taught the kids about Christ. He is history's most widely read preacher. By 1900, more than 100 million sermons had been sold in 23 languages. That is unmatched, by the way, by any preacher before or since. Hmm. I can't think of the smiley guy. Joel Osteen, yeah. Sorry, Joel. Spurgeon wins. A hundred years after his death, there were more works in print by Spurgeon than any other English-speaking author. Wow! Wow! He authored 135 books, by the way. Many of them I have in my office. Uh, pamphlets, tracts, and articles. 3,800 sermons in print. 63 volumes containing 25 million words. It's the largest set of books by a single author in the history of of the church from this man. Talking to Liz Rosendahl earlier this week, and she said that her entire life, she has begun her devotion time with the Word and then the morning reading of the devotional from Spurgeon and the evening reading as well at the end of the day. He has shepherded Liz her entire life. This man has had a lasting impact. He has strengthened me in my resolve as a preacher, tremendously. One man, friends, one man who's faithful. Just a regular guy, faithful. Spurgeon suffered greatly toward the end of his life. He preached his last sermon in the tabernacle on June 7th, 1891. He, he died uh, a number of months later when he was 57 years old. Six funeral services were held, 60,000 mourners, 100,000 people stood along the route. In London, this was almost equivalent of, of like a royal funeral. And on top of his coffin, his Bible was placed open to Isaiah 45, 22. The bookends of his life. Look, look, look. Not to Spurgeon, but to Christ. He said it this way, I am often, this is on his deathbed, he shared with his wife, I'm often both amazed and dazed with his mercy and his love. How good God has been to me. 
I used to think that I should sing among the saints above as as loudly as any, for I owe so much to the grace of God. Do you feel that? Every time I read that quote this week, I cried. I feel that in me too. I owe everything to His grace. I said once in a sermon long ago, Then loudest of the crowd I'll sing while heavens resound and mansions ring. And I don't doubt when he says loudest, by the way. I don't doubt at all. That guy could project. While heavens resound and mansions ring with shouts of sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Turn. Look, look to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Remember the feeble man from the congregation who stood. You talk about joy. When that man welcomed Spurgeon into everlasting joy. Just think of his heart. His overflowing joy. He had the courage to stand up And preach one little verse. Look at the impact that God had. Moms, with your children, think of what may happen through your faithful instruction of them. Dads, shepherding, being willing to step up and lead your family, having the courage to speak up. Who knows what God may accomplish through one tiny little word. That is our God takes regular people like us and does unbelievable things. Our response this morning. I want to ask the question, are you here? Is Jesus your Savior? Spurgeon would roll over in his grave if I didn't ask this question, and rightly so. Are you saved? Today is the day of salvation. Look to Jesus Christ. You have only to look. The work is done. He has accomplished all that is necessary for your salvation. Run to Him. Embrace Him. Trust Him. And you will be saved from your sins today. That's the good news of the Gospel. Today is the day of salvation. The the gates are open wide. The door is open. It may not be for long. Don't wait. Number one, love and embrace every verse and doctrine of God's Word. Love and embrace, even if it's hard, even if you don't fully understand it, even if it makes you grind a little bit, move past that and say, Oh Lord, I will trust Your Word. I will trust You, the God of Your Word, and I will find a way to delight in the truth therein. Number two, stand firm on God's Word even if you stand alone. Well over 100 people in 2010 hit the doors because I was preaching every verse. They said, no, we don't want to hear about those doctrines. We want to hear about the Gospel. And I said, that is the Gospel. I don't know how else to put it. We don't skip verses here. That's not in me. We love every verse on every page. And if you stand alone, you're in good company. We stand on the shoulders of those who've stood alone. Come what may. God will bless a church that's faithful to His Word far sooner than a church that is willing to shave off the offensiveness of the Gospel and fill its seats. Number three, long to reach the lost with the Gospel. Long to reach the lost with the gospel. Does it burn in you? Is it the zeal you wake up in the morning with? Lord, use me today. Help me to speak. Who is lost? Pray, speak, reach, and trust. And number four, never allow your passion for evangelism to compromise the gospel you carry. It is not love to pull back when it comes to things like sin or wrath or hell. This is the gospel of which we have been entrusted to carry. May the Lord find us faithful. Let's pray.
Oh God, we delight in Your servant Charles Spurgeon today. Thank You for the way You sustained him through the fire. We give praise to You and we find inspiration from his obedience to You, his faithfulness to You, Lord, his love for the doctrines and verses of the Gospel and for evangelism and carrying that Gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray that our small little church here would be used powerfully by You, Lord, to the ends of the earth. Find us faithful, we pray. Find us fruitful. And find us living our lives solely Deo Gloria all the way through the tape. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.